Welcome to the North Main Podcast, a production of North Main Street Church of God in Butler, Pennsylvania. This podcast brings you North Main's messages every week. We strive to know God intimately, grow in Christ continually, and go for Him daily. I invite you to listen in today as we explore the Bible and learn about its unchanging truths for living life God's way. Let's listen in to this week's message. In his book entitled Influence, Dr. Robert Cialdini of Arizona State University relates the story of a jewelry, jewelry store owner who was preparing to go on vacation who had left tasks for her staff to perform while she was gone. Um, she had a line of jewelry that hadn't been selling very well and had been in the, in the cases for quite some time. And she left a note that was seemingly unclear about what to do with that jewelry. In her haste, she ended up leaving a note um, that was, oh, I already, I'm, uh, sorry, I, I was off on that. She ended up leaving a note uh, that basically indicated, I want you to lower the price even more um, so that we can get rid of this stuff. I need to make way for some new jewelry to come in. Well, she got back from vacation, and she noticed that the case was empty with the jewelry that she'd had for so long. But she also noticed that in her bank account, there was quite a bit more money than what she had anticipated when she got back. And here's what the employees did, her staff did. They raised the prices on everything in the case that had not been selling. I think it's interesting that when we value things higher, Oftentimes, people see them through a different lens, don't they? How often have we thought, well, you get what you pay for? And in many cases, that's true. We think that if it's more expensive, it's got to be better. Within this idea of Christ, he was valued very poorly by his culture in his day and age. Jesus was not looked upon as somebody of worth by the general culture. Isaiah says that he came and we esteemed him not. And it even tells us in many parts of the scripture that he was not someone to look at, not somebody you would take a second glance at, not really. So we esteemed him very lowly. It says he became flesh, God did, and dwelt among us. But it also tells us in John chapter 1 that we were, didn't recognize him when he came. Do you think maybe it's the other way around in some cases, specifically with Jesus, that when we value him little, he should be valued much? I mean, the truth of the matter is, Jesus came as the very form of God, God in the flesh, Emmanuel, God with us, as Isaiah proclaims in his prophecies. But we value him very little. Not much has changed in our culture. We value him very little. We value him little uh, because he doesn't do for us what we expect him to do. We value him little when we uh, heap these expectations on what we think God should be or how he should act. We, we value him little when we read the scriptures that we don't understand and we say, well, God can't be like that. But is God to be valued little or great? 
We look at this passage of scripture today from Luke chapter 4, and really this is Jesus' mission statement. Do you have a personal mission statement of your own? Have you ever said, this is my mission statement. God has created me for this thing. This is what I know I am to do. And my mission statement is what? It's not bad to have a personal mission statement. But if your mission statement is tied to anything other than God himself, then there's a problem. Now, you can argue with me about that as much as you want to. But I know the truth is, as image bearers of the almighty God, we cannot find the most fulfillment in life apart from him whose image we bear. We must become children of God. And the only way to become a child of God is by being tied to Christ through faith and belief in him, confessing him with our lips. It seems so simple. We think there's got to be more to it than that. We looked last week at how joy came in the form of a baby was laid in a manger in Bethlehem last week. This week, we're looking at the mission of Jesus, who was the embodiment of God's true joy. And as we look at that today, I'm going to be reading from the New Living Translation, so I ask you to follow along with me if you can. If you're at home, we welcome you to join in as well. Um, Luke chapter 4, we're starting with verse 14. Jesus returned to Galilee, filled with the Holy Spirit's power, and reports about him spread quickly throughout the whole region. He taught regularly in their synagogues and was praised by everyone. Now, what had happened just prior to this? Well, Jesus had been baptized by John the Baptist down in the Jordan River in Judea. He now traveled back to Galilee, which is where he was originally from. Galilee is the region around the Sea of Galilee or Gennesaret, depending on how your Bibles are translated, and the sea that Jesus walked on later on in the story, if you continue to read in the Gospels. This region of Galilee, there's a town called Nazareth. Nazareth is where Jesus, after being born in Bethlehem, his family migrated back to Nazareth, where, is where Joseph and Mary originally had their homes. And they settled in Nazareth. Now, Nazareth was actually a fairly large city for the day and age. There's around 24 to 25,000 people, some people estimate. And so it's a bustling city. That's where Joseph, Jesus' stepfather, had his trade as a carpenter. When he came to the village of Nazareth, this is Jesus now. He's now set out on his track for ministry. He came to the village of Nazareth, his boyhood home. He went, as usual, to the synagogue, which was his normal routine to go to the synagogue and teach. And on the Sabbath, he stood up to read the scriptures, as would have been customary by any male Jewish figure of the day. They could go in and take a turn and read the scriptures for the day. The scroll of Isaiah the prophet was handed to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. And this is from Isaiah 61, in case you're curious. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Now, L-O-R-D in all caps, I've mentioned this before, actually is the formal name given to God by Hebrew custom. This is the name that we find first in Exodus chapter 3 when Moses is standing before the burning bush and Moses is asking, 
this burning bush, this voice from the burning bush, who shall I say is sending me to set the captives free in Israel? And the voice from the bush says, I am that I am. Tell them I am has sent you. This caps, all caps, L-O-R-D, means Yahweh, or Y-H-W-H. He says, the spirit of Yahweh is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that the captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. He rolled up the scroll at that point, it says, and handed it back to the attendant who would get the scrolls from the closet where the Torah and the other scrolls of the readings were kept. And he sat down, and all eyes in the synagogue looked at him intently. Now, it was customary when they were reading Scripture, they would stand, unroll the scroll, and when they were done, they would roll it up, hand it back to the attendant, and they would sit at the head of the synagogue round, in the round in a seat called the Moses seat. And so it was customary to teach from a seated position. So when the, when the teacher of the day would sit down, everybody knew that the teacher was going to unpack what he had just read and give his commentary on it. All eyes in the synagogue looked at him intently, it says that day, after he was seated. And then he began to speak to them. The scripture you've just heard has been fulfilled this very day. Now that was written some 700 years before Jesus' time. Isaiah 61, the prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament <clears throat> had written these words nearly seven centuries prior. And Jesus takes the seat and says, today these words have come true, have been fulfilled. Everyone spoke well of him at that point and, as, and were amazed by the gracious words that came from his lips. How can this be, they ask? Isn't this, isn't this Joseph's son? Then he said, you will undoubtedly quote me this proverb, physician, heal yourself, meaning do miracles here in your hometown like those you did in Capernaum. See, they had heard of the great teachings of Jesus and the great miracles of Jesus. They had preceded him before he had come back to his hometown. He had been in Capernaum and doing miraculous signs and wonders. And he's now saying to them, you're probably going to ask me to do some kind of sideshow, aren't you? You're going to want me to go around doing what I did in Capernaum because you want a sign just to make sure that what I'm telling you is true. Do miracles here in your hometown like those you did in Capernaum. But I tell you the truth, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. Certainly there will be many needy widows in Israel, excuse me, certainly there were many needy widows in Israel in Elijah's time. When the heavens were closed for three and a half years and a severe famine devastated the land, Elijah was not sent to any of them. He was sent instead to a foreigner, a widow of Zarephath in the land of Sidon. Do you hear what he's saying? Then he goes on. I'm gonna, let, me, let me talk about this in just a second. And there were many lepers in Israel at the time of the prophet Elijah. 
But the only one healed was Naaman, a Syrian. Now, if you don't know anything about church history or the Old Testament, the widow of Zarephath and Naaman were not Jews. And so Jesus is saying, there were times in the past when the prophets were among you who would not do miracles and wonders in front of you. Instead, they went to the Gentiles and did it. Well, guess what Jesus' hearers took from that? They said, oh, well, that's nice. That's really nice. No. When they heard this, the people in the synagogue were furious, basically saying, because they had been the chosen people, they were the chosen people, from Abraham on, the Hebrew people, the Israelites, the Jews, were the chosen But what did they do? They elevated their status to a place of exclusivity instead of being a people that were open to all nations at all times. They had neglected Abraham's mission statement that God had given him in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, which said, you will be a blessing to the nations. Guess what they had been a blessing to? Themselves. And at all costs. They had neglected what they were called to do. And when they were neglected what they were called to do, the prophets of God went to the nations the way they were supposed to. And Jesus is telling his hearers now, those Jews in Nazareth, it's going to be the same way. You're going to reject my message. There's no amount of signs, wonders, and miracles that I'm ever going to be able to do here to make you happy. You're gonna, it'll be like a freak show at a circus. Hey, look, Jesus is doing another sign, another wonder. It's not gonna happen here because you don't really believe. And in one of the other gospels, it says he could not do miracles there because of their disbelief. Wait, God couldn't do miracles? Is there anything God can't do? Can he build a rock bigger than he can lift? Obviously, belief and or disbelief have an effect on the holy presence of God. So Jesus incenses the people. They become infuriated with him, jumping up. It says in verse 29, they mobbed him and forced him to the edge of a hill on which the town was built. And if you go there today, you'll see there is a a cliff or a hillside where you could take people today and throw them off if you feel so inclined to do so. <laughs> Sorry, there was uh, Alex, I can always count on you, on you there. <laughs> they intended to push him over the cliff. Have you ever felt like you were, you're pushing me over the edge, right? They literally had taken him out to the edge of the town where the cliff was in Nazareth, and they had intended to push him over. Why? Well, they... He made them angry. And so, of course, that's the natural thing to do. When you get angry, you resort to violence, right? I'm being facetious. If you're watching from home, I'm not inciting you to violence, okay? Don't let that be said. I'm being sarcastic. You're not going to do what we want you to do when we want you to do it, and instead you're insulting us by saying that we aren't worthy to have signs and wonders done in our midst, and you're going to go take that to the Gentiles. Well, we'll show you. 
They drag him out to the edge of town, but that's not the end of the story. It says, when they drew him to the edge of the cliff, in verse 30, he passed right through the crowd and went on his way. I just get this. I don't know if you ever picture the, the Bible the way I do. You probably don't, because I... <laughs> Because I, I see things sometimes that probably aren't accurate in my own mind. So I am like, well, this is kind of what I picture. It's like a sitcom or sometimes it's, it's a drama or, you know, but I picture they're all Ooh, mobbing him and they're dragging him and they're all forming this huge mob. And he goes, well, see you later. And walks right through the crowd. I mean, what kind of a commanding presence of God through Jesus Christ can just walk right through a raging mob and get out of there. Only God. So the takeaway and the key point this morning is this. True joy brings good news. So true joy was born in Bethlehem. We talked about that last week from Luke chapter 2. This week, Luke chapter 4, true joy brings good news. And the good news is Jesus' mission statement. The biggest proclamation of his teachings were the kingdom of God. And what you see unwrapped in Isaiah 61 when Jesus reads this scroll is the very presence of the kingdom of God being manifested and explained before the people. The spirit of the Lord is upon me for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. Good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that the captives will be released. That the blind will see, the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. Not only is that good news for all people, or should it be good news for all people, that is the very essence of what the kingdom brings when the kingdom comes. However, though true joy and good news, though true joy comes through this good news, not all the time is good news seen as good news to people who don't believe the truth. Let me, let me explain that. Have you ever gotten good news and you're like, that's not really good news? Because it affects you adversely. You're like, well, that may be good news for you, but that's not good news for me. Was this good news to the people in Nazareth? No, because they took his words and they said, that's not good news for us. Initially, they were amazed by his teaching, and they were excited because he's now in their midst. He had been at Capernaum doing some miraculous things, and now he's, he's there, and they're waiting on pins and needles. What are you going to do? Well, I'm going to go, uh, you're, you're going to reject my message, and so eventually it's going to go to the Gentiles. Now, Jesus, we know in his life's ministry, didn't travel more than 200 miles in his ministry outreach from Judea to Galilee and back. He didn't go anywhere else. And it was to the people of the house of Israel. But what he was proclaiming is that eventually, this good news message will not only be rejected by you, there will be others who rise up to take this message out. And we know Apostle Paul was just one of those characters. He was commissioned to go to the Gentiles. He felt his calling to the Gentiles. And so Jesus' prophecies were about to come true, though it may be for a couple years later. As he even indicates in Acts chapter 1 and 2, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the utter ends of the earth. Now, 
What do we learn from this? There are two quick points this morning. It's this. Jesus reveals who he is and his mission in this world. That's the main takeaway from this is that he reveals who he is and what his mission is in the world. What does he say in that short statement? Today this has been fulfilled in your sight. That was a messianic prophecy from Isaiah 61. Jesus is saying today this has been fulfilled. What is he saying about himself? We hear people oftentimes claim, well, Jesus never claimed to be the Messiah. He didn't have to. I don't have to go around telling you that I'm something if I'm that. I don't. Jesus didn't need to tell everybody, but we have so many instances, especially in the Gospels, where Jesus may not come out and say, hey guys, I'm God in the flesh, but he says it in so many words. So this is one, hey, this has been fulfilled in your sight. If you go to John, I believe it's chapter 8, toward the end of the chapter, and if I'm misquoting this, please correct me on this. But Jesus is speaking to the religious leaders, Pharisees, and others, and he says, listen, you, you claim Abraham's your father, and he goes through this whole litany, and then you go on down, it says, before Abraham existed, I am. All right? Now, this is powerful, because you can look at that, and most of the English translations of that should be like the word Lord on the screen a while ago, all caps, I am. Do you know what Jesus is saying? This ego, a me in Greek, but in, if you translate, translate that into Hebrew, it's technically Yahweh. He is saying, before Abraham was, I am. Before Abraham was, Yahweh. Do you know what he's saying about himself? He's God. Right? This is, and that's one instance. How many I ams are there about Jesus? I am the bread and the life. I am this. And you know the term there, ego a me. Ego a me, the bread of life. Ego a me, water. Lest we think less of him than what he really is. He reveals his mission. The passage of scripture, again, is from Isaiah 61. I want to break these apart really quickly this morning. What does he say? He said, he came to bring good news to the poor. This is the one uh, who has been driven to utter distress and dismay, the poor. They could be poor physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, for whatever case it may be, they have been driven to such distress and dismay. This person or people, they, they're the ones who have been cast off and cast out by society as undesirable. Who did Jesus minister to the most? Yes, he went to the synagogues. He taught in the synagogues. He read from the scripture of his day, which was the Old Testament. But who do we see him healing and touching and getting the closest to? Tax collectors, prostitutes, lepers, homeless, the unclean, so to speak. He came to bring good news to the poor and he lived it out. And he even gives us this proclamation when you've done it unto the least of these, you've done it unto me. He's basically saying, when you go out and you do as I've showed you, as I've been the example of for you, you're ministering to me when you minister to others. These people who 
he's come to bring good news to who are poor. These are the ones who have been cheated, who have been stolen from, who've been mistreated and abused, and in all ways affected by the injustice within society, whether, whether because of or in spite of their own doing. These are the widows, the orphans, the beggars, the handicapped, the homeless, the jobless, the diseased. Jesus has come to bring this group of people good news. Good news isn't only for those who have made it in life. It's not only for those who have great health. It's not only for those who have the best jobs or the best income or the most solid family structure. Good news is for broken homes. It's for the addict. It's for the one who is homeless and on the streets. It's for the one that doesn't have two dimes to rub together. It's for the one who is mentally handicapped. It is for the one who is physically handicapped. It's for the Democrat. It's for the Republican. It's for the Independent. See, this good news is for anybody, quite frankly. And if we've all sinned and fallen short of God's glorious standard, are we all not in some sense a part of the poor in some way, form, or fashion? See, Jesus' good news is for all. No matter who you are, where you're from, or your current situation. He's also come to proclaim that captives will be released. See, the word for captives here can be properly translated as prisoner of war. If you look it up in the Greek, there's some, again, Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic translated into the English language. There's sometimes um, missing components or things that you just can't translate equally. But one of the best terms for this is prisoner of war. Not only are there people who are literally prisoners of war, but there are those who are slaves and indentured servants to other people. There are also those who are emotionally enslaved, mentally enslaved, culturally enslaved by systems, people, and groups that do not desire their well-being. But on top of all this, there are those who are spiritually enslaved to the bondage of sin and death who continue to perpetuate the fallenness within society and the world at large. These people who seemingly have it all together, have everything the world has to offer, have oftentimes become enslaved to wealth, status, fame, power, and other things like that. We're all captives to somebody or something. Jesus came to proclaim to the captives that they would be released. He came to break open the prison doors and to set people free. What are you in bondage to today? What are you a prisoner of war of? Pornography, anger, bitterness, rage, hatred, unforgiveness? Are you in bondage to an abusive spouse? Are you in bondage to someone who abused you when you were young? But now they're dead and gone, but the bondage still lords over you. Yes, there are things today, physical things today, like the sex trafficking. We think slavery has been abolished. Oh my gosh, no. It's worse now than ever in human history. 
And though the news may not report it well, there are captives being set free, 36 young children in Ohio within the past few weeks, and numerous others that are being set free from sex trafficking and slavery that have either been shipped in from overseas to disgusting pedophiles or who are domestic, many in the foster care system who don't get looked after the way they should. I've been holding off on this, and let me give a little side note here. Um, the Lord's been laying on me for some time. What is North Maine to become in this next season of life? And I've been wrestling with, okay, God, what, what is your vision for North Maine? Where would you have us go? What would you have us do? And I, I've been seeing some writing on the wall, if you will, and I think he's calling us to be a church of foster parents, a church of adoptive parents. The least of these that are finding themselves locked away in group homes and uh, some other places who are seemingly have the odds stacked against them. They deserve an opportunity. What is our ministry? In the New Testament, we are told to, to minister to the widows and the orphans. There are way too many children, and there are way too few healthy homes. Our churches across America should be the healthy home structure that these kids get to experience. And if you can't do that, then I want our church to be people who support those through that process. We've partnered with a company or an agency called Bethany Christian Services, and they have placed many, many children in need in our community. They say one of the greatest needs is, uh, honestly, healthy homes for kids. But you hear horror stories. Well, uh, we can't foster because uh, we hear that this, that, or the other, and we just don't want to... You, we just, it's too risky. Is it? I don't know. I don't think so. Jesus took a risk on us. We were orphaned from him by sin and death. And he came. He was willing to take care of the dysfunction and loved us and adopted us as his children when we believe. That's my spiel. You may hear more of that coming soon. He's also come to help the blind to see. Now, we do know in Jesus' ministry in the Gospels, what does he do? He heals the blind physically. Does he heal the blind people the same way every time? No, because he knows as humans, we like to look for patterns. If we do it this way, exactly the way he did it, then boom, miracle will happen. Sometimes he makes mud pies. And smear. Sometimes he spits on people. <laughs> no joke. Read it. And he gives the ultimate wet willy in somebody's ear who was deaf. Sometimes he does crazy things. And you know, the reality is God doesn't have to physically do anything to heal somebody. There was a woman who just touched the hem of his garment and she was healed after 12 years of bleeding. He doesn't have, he's like, whoa, I felt something come out of me. Somebody yanked on my robe, right? He doesn't need to do anything 
except speak or not speak. He doesn't have to be present physically with you to heal. So why does he do it all these different ways? Because he wants us to understand it's not about the process, it's about the person. The blind will see. What's he talking about here? Yes, the physical blind will see. He showed us that. But if you've been blind and you've not been healed from that, does that mean he doesn't love you? No, not at all. It's also people who are spiritually blind, emotionally blind. It's those people who can't see the reality of a situation right staring, front of, right staring at them in their face. These people who are lost in spiritual blindness, and there are many, he has come to help them see. He is a God of love. In stark contrast to the Pharisees and the religious leaders of his day who willingly blinded the people to who God was, by, uh, was overwhelming them by the letter of the law, this is what they would do. Jesus even said this. He says, you go around, religious leaders, Pharisees, and you heap these burdens on the backs of people, and you won't lift a finger. Church, have we become like that? Well, if you don't do it our way, Do we do that? Do we treat Christianity and a life in Christ as if it's a burden on the backs of people? Or do we help them to see that there's true freedom through Christ Jesus? He can help you see better than you ever have. He can set you free from sin and death. You can no longer be a captive to sin. You can be a child of God. I hate it and I see it often. Where people say, well, if you're not going to do it my way, then off with you. See, Christians doing that. Ladies and gentlemen, can I ask you this? And those of you at home, if Jesus were to show up here today, do you think we'd recognize him? Do you think he would look like we expect him to look? Do you think he would act like we expect him to act? Do you think the manifest presence of his Holy Spirit would actually look like what we expect. No, because we have a preconceived notion about what God should do, how he should act, and we, we have this slim little view based on our reading of Scripture, if we even read it at all, that we keep the blinders on. And so if Jesus were to show up and do what Jesus does, it would scare most of us to death. And we would say, whoa, I didn't sign up for this. And many of us would leave a space or a place like this, not only in fear, but in rejection of Christ. Yes, we should test and make sure, is this of God? And if it is, we need to go all in. If it's not, then we should flee. But the problem is, in American Christianity today, we have said church can only happen with hymns, with pews. Church can only happen if it happens my way, and if not, then I'm going to go to the next church. It'll give me what I want. Oh, give me a break. 
Fine, stomp your feet. If the preacher is preaching the Bible and he's illuminating what the scripture is saying to you and you stomp your feet because you're not getting your version of it, then by all means leave. How often did Jesus stand before crowds and say things that hurt their feelings? Because he was trying to get to a deeper truth to pull the blinders off so they could see God for who he really was. We have been so deceived by the enemy in our day and age thinking God has to serve me. But does he? He did, and he didn't have to. He died for you. He died for them. And when we walk around saying, we've got an edge on it all, and we lord over others, then we are twice the enemy of hell. Church, we've got to wake up. I'm done with this Christianity that says, quite frankly, you got to do church this way if you want people to grow, if you want the church to grow. You've got to say things like this. You can't offend. I'm not trying to offend. The Bible does it on its own. Have you read it? If you read it and you read Jesus' words, it's offensive. Read, I, I just, we did this a couple years ago, 2017, three years ago or so. We went through the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus' very words, Matthew 5 through Matthew 7. You read that and don't come away offended. I don't know. I don't know what to tell you. There were things in there I didn't want to preach because I knew if I preached them, it would step on toes, maybe even my own. But pastors and leaders and Pharisees, modern Pharisees, who sit in the pews of our churches or preach on the stage of our pulpits, perpetuate this numbness and this blindness when they don't address the full word of God. He says the oppressed will be set free. This is, this is cool. Different than the captives, the oppressed would be set free. The literal meaning of the word for oppressed here actually means to crush or to bruise. Have you ever felt crushed or bruised? I have. It's not fun. And, and maybe not physically. Sometimes the mental and emotional crushing and bruising is worse than any physical bruise I could get on my body. Have you been the crusher or the abuser or the bruiser? Maybe you need to repent. No, you do need to repent. Have you not gotten your way to the point where you have lorded over somebody? Maybe you need to go make it right. Those who were crushed or, abused or, or bruised by people in this world, by corrupt systems of abuse, or by life in general. Maybe no one individual's done this. Maybe you found yourself in circumstantial situations where you have been beaten and abused. I think of the story of Job, 
who was crushed and bruised. And it wasn't by any making of his own. Have you been one of those who are overlooked, dismissed out of hand, or who are just completely forgotten? You're not forgotten by Jesus. You're not forgotten by God who loves you, who cares for you, who came to give you life abundantly by giving his life completely. It's interesting in this section, finally, the concluding statement of Jesus. Do you know what he says? He comes to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Do you know what that's in reference to? It's called the year of Jubilee. The year of Jubilee is a 50-year, after 50 years, you get one year where all debts are released, all captives are set free, all land that was owned reverts back to the original owners. This is why it's called a year of Jubilee, the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus says, I have come to proclaim the year of the Lord's Jubilee. My coming will set all of this right. And it's not going to happen once every 50 years from now on. The year of the Lord's favor is now and forever. Amen. At least there was a couple of you that felt that way. It doesn't feel like a year of jubilee, does it, right now? 2020, woo, year of jubilee. No, it feels like a year from hell to me. But do you believe that he came to set the captives free? He came for the poor, the oppressed, even in 2020. See, this message of good news should be a joyful message no matter what circumstance or situation we find ourselves in. It's a message of joy. It's a message of jubilee. How would you like to have your debts released? How would you like to have your life restored, to be set free from indentured servitude or whatever the case may be, to go back home and have a chance to start over. Wouldn't that feel good? What if we could go back and start over 2020 again? Just, all right, let's do it. Let's clean slate. Let's just do a do-over. <laughs> the do-over starts now. If you have been bitter, angry, frustrated as I have, maybe it's time to let that go and say, all right, God, I don't know what you're doing, but I still believe you're Lord of all, you're in control, and I'm going to follow your lead in this. I don't know what the end result is. I don't know what that looks like, but I'm stepping out in faith and I'm following you because I believe that there is a year of jubilee that exists right now and I'm failing to step into it because of my own selfishness and pride. So I'm going to let go of that. I'm going to find different ways to to connect with you, address you, and to address others for you. The second thing, and real quickly I'll close with this, Jesus' good news was not received in his hometown. As Jesus continues to explain further how he was the direct fulfillment of this prophecy, oh, let me back up real quick. Did you see that one thing was missing from Isaiah 61? Because see, there was a, there's half a sentence that Jesus left out. He said he also claimed to, uh, uh, to, see, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of the vengeance of our God. <laughs> this is subtle. He doesn't read that part. But that's a part of that. Guess what? Thank God he didn't 
come to proclaim vengeance. The pandemic is not God's, God's vengeance. You may be hearing from other people that it is. There is a day of vengeance coming. It's called the great day of the Lord. We call that judgment time. Jesus will come again. And at the second coming, he will set the record straight once and for all. Sin and death will be officially dealt with eternally so that it never has an effect on the new heaven and the new earth that he's bringing. There will be no sin, sickness, disease, death, sorrow, tears. It'll all be gone. There will be no more orphans or widows. There will be no more addiction or strongholds anymore. They will be gone. That day of vengeance, when those things will be dealt with, has not come yet. It is on its way. It could be in the next 10 minutes. It could be in the next 10 days or 10 years or who knows when. But Jesus oftentimes said, be ready. Be ready, because you don't know when. Well, it's got to be 2020, because I see the writing on the wall, and I see this, and all. Yeah, okay, speculate all you want to till you're blue in the face. You don't know. Nobody does. And if anybody tells you they know, they're wrong. Because Jesus said, nobody knows. And I believe him more than anybody else. All right. The Jewish people in Jesus' day had come wrongly to assume that the coming Messiah would be exclusively their savior and king. They thought he would rule in power and might and military force and overthrow the oppressive regimes of this world. Guess what? Jesus didn't do that. He didn't raise up an army. He raised up servants. He didn't say, take up arms. He said, love one another. He didn't say, curse those who persecute you. He said, love them. He didn't say, you should go out and kill somebody who has tried to kill you or kill one of your family members. Forgive them. It's hard. See, this life in Christ is not easy. The mission he came to live was not easy for him either, but he did it. And he showed us how we can do it if we follow in his footsteps. When you try to do it in your own power and your own strength, you're going to fail miserably every time, and you're going to resort to vengeance. You're going to resort to anger. You're going to resort to all these other things and work out of your own spirit, which will be a crushing blow to you and to anybody around you. But when you follow the Spirit of God, you can be set free. Because where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. And if you take the Spirit of the Lord with you as a believer in Christ, guess where you go, what you take. You take freedom with you. Take freedom to the places you frequent. N.T. Wright describes the expectations regarding the Jewish Messiah. He said the coming king would do two things. According to a variety of texts, and as, the study, uh, as we study a variety of actual would-be royal movements within history, first, he would build or restore the temple. This is what the Jews in Jesus' day and age and those prior thought was going to happen, that he, would rebuild the, uh, that he would restore the temple. 
Of course, after 70 AD, when it was torn down, they, they keep thinking there's going to be another Messiah come. It's going to restore and rebuild the temple. There's a lot of that going around even in Christian circles today. Second, he would fight the decisive battle against the enemy. David's first act upon being anointed as, uh, was to fight Goliath. Did you realize that? When he was anointed as king, what did he do? He went out to the battlefield to take provisions for his brothers, but he saw that there's, a, there's an enemy out there. Well, why aren't you guys fighting him? I mean, the Lord has preceded us in battle. Don't you believe that he, I'll do it if you guys aren't going to do it. His last, his, his, so his first act upon being anointed king was to fight Goliath. His last act was to plan to build the temple who God, you know, God didn't allow him to build it. Judas Maccabeus, this happens between Malachi and Matthew in your Bibles. There's about a 400 year span there where uh, there's other stuff that, happens that we that are not documented in our, our scriptures. Judas Maccabeus defeated the Syrians and cleansed the temple. Herod defeated the Parthians and rebuilt the temple. Bar Kokhba, the last would-be Messiah of the period, aimed to defeat the Romans and to rebuild the temple. Do you see a pattern here? But now Jesus, he comes onto the scene. What does he do? It's unlikely that the followers of a crucified Messiah would regard such a person to be the true Messiah. And that's why they didn't recognize him. Jesus did not rebuild the temple. He, did, he, he not only did not defeat the Romans, he died at their hands in a manner of failed revolutionary leaders being crucified, which is one of the worst forms of execution the world has ever known. He didn't fit their preconceived notions. But he was living out his mission. And greater than all of the leaders of the world, Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. I'm going to call our worship team forward to close us out today. When I ask you these questions, has God not moved in your life because you've had a, you've had a sense of unbelief? Just a question. Have you been expecting God to do something for you, to act in some way towards you, to alleviate some stress from you? And yet he's not, he's not following your command. <laughs> the question is, are you completely surrendered? And even if you are, what if he doesn't answer your prayer the way you hope? Well, then he's not really God. He's not really powerful. I've seen a lot of people go that route, right? No, no, no. Even when God says no, that is an answer to a prayer. Even if we want it with all of our heart to be yes. God, why aren't you eradicating the pandemic? Why aren't you doing this or that? Why are God, we see the right, it's getting ready to be, things are tense in our culture. Are we on the verge of civil war? Why aren't you doing something? And you know what he's saying? I already have. I already have. What are you doing? Well, I'm praying. I'm huddling up in my house. I'm praying and I'm continuing. Good, 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 good. Continue to pray. But put action to your prayers. You are my hands and feet. You are my mouth, my ears, my eyes. You are my body. 
And I said this not too long ago, and you may have heard me say this. I fear that the body of Christ in America is in a full-body cast. If you're in this Christianity thing only for you, it's time to bow out. I'm sorry, but that's just the truth. If you're in it for what you can get out of it, you're in it for the wrong reasons. You see, Jesus gave everything so that you could have eternal life. And you know what he wants? He just wants you. He wants you. But in giving him yourself, you give him all of you. Not just a portion, not just a Sunday morning segment, not just a a little bit of money here and there, or not just even lip service. You give him all of you, heart, soul, mind, strength. Because he will take nothing less. Let's pray. Father, I, I know what your mission was through Jesus Christ. I know what you came to do. But remind me what you desire of me to do. Remind me that a life of faith is not about me. It's always about you. Remind me it's not about what I receive, but what I give. Remind me that the greatest commandments are to love you completely and to love others as myself. And remind me that that love is an action and that love compels me to go, not for something I can receive back in return, but because I love you and I love others. And whenever I start to doubt and question, when I feel lost, alone, frustrated, angry, bitter, remind me that very moment, not too long before Jesus died on the cross, who said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Thank you, Father. It's in his name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us this week. Check back next week as we dig deeper and go further in our understanding of God's word. Make sure to visit us on our website, www.northmaincog.org, where you can learn more about us. If you found value in today's message, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would be helpful too. Donating to the ongoing ministry of North Main is easy. Just go to our website and click on the Give tab at the top of the screen. Thanks for listening. We look forward to you joining us again next week.